So welcome again to Seven Mile Road Church. My name is Ajay Thomas. I'm a pastor here uh, at this brand new baby church plant. Uh, we are a church that's about a week old now. Uh, we just kicked off last week with weekly worship services, and so it's a huge joy to see many of you back and to welcome others of you here for the first time. Um, last week, as we started, we also launched or kicked off with our very first preaching series, a series we're calling Talks with Jesus. Last week, we said that for the next several months, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at various conversations that Jesus had with various people throughout his life. We're going to begin this week sort of at the beginning and move somewhat chronologically through his life. And our hope is to discover who Jesus is through the conversations that he had. Today, we're in for a really good one. We're in Matthew chapter 4 and the first 11 verses. And we watch and listen in as Jesus talks with the devil. To be honest, it's not so much a friendly conversation as it is a fierce battle. If you like a good battle, a contest, a, a war, the two sides pitted against each other, good versus evil, you're going to love this story. The truth is we love stories of wars waged and the heroes that fight in them between good and evil. We love and celebrate heroes who fight. We love leaders who not only lead their armies, but do so right onto the battlefield. We love the guys that are not tucked away in some tent talking about tactics, but are the first ones to sound the charge and storm the field. It's the reason we celebrate and rally and love even fictional leaders like Braveheart's William Wallace or Maximus from Gladiator. We love the idea of guys who know how to wield a sword and are willing to do so right alongside their men, to bleed and sweat and even die engaged in a fight, who know what it's like to be in a struggle, to be in the battle, to fight the enemy. Well, it's something like that that I love, and you're going to love about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 in the first 11 verses, because in that chapter, Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the tempter. In that chapter, Matthew sort of gives us front row seats to this cosmic battle, this epic showdown in the desert as Jesus faces your enemy mind and his. Jesus is tempted by the devil. Tempted. You know what that's like. You know what it's like to be tempted. We know what it's like to be tempted. You know what it's like to sit in front of a computer screen fighting every urge in your body that wants to look at pornography. You know what it's like to fight every urge to hold your tongue when everything in you wants to let it loose and lash out. You know what it's like to be tempted. And perhaps you know all too well what it's like to fail in temptation. In saner moments to look back and think back and ask yourself, how could I have been so dumb? How did it get so dark and get so dark so fast? And how could I have fallen for that? Or worse, how could I have fallen again? You know what it's like to self-loathe because you've fallen yet again for temptation. Maybe you know what it's like to be in that battle and maybe you know all too well what it's like to fail in that battle. And if you know what it's like to be tempted, what the Bible wants to shout to you, scream to you today is, 
So does Jesus. Just like us, tempted in every way, just like us, but where we have failed, Matthew's going to shout, Jesus has succeeded. Let me just throw this out there because many of you have grown up in church or around religion and you're familiar with scriptures and maybe you've read this passage before. Maybe you've heard it taught or heard it preached. And so the usual line of understanding goes something like this. Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted. The devil tempts him three times and three times Jesus fires back with a verse of scripture. And so the application is, if you too can store scripture in your heart, when temptation comes, you will triumph, you'll overcome, you'll be victorious, you'll slay the devil. Now, I want to nod in agreement with some of that truth. There is some incredible truth to that, and I want to give my assent to it. I want us to understand that we do battle the enemy with God's truth. We do combat his lies with God's word. God's Word tells us in Ephesians 6 that the Scriptures are the sword of the Spirit and it's useful in spiritual warfare. But the question we have to ask is, is Matthew's primary intention to give us in Matthew chapter 4 a military manual, a combat handbook, a technique for fighting Satan? As you read through the Gospels, you're going to find that Jesus is often tempted and sometimes he uses Scripture Sometimes he just outright rebukes. But every time, whatever his tactics, where you and I often fail, Jesus succeeds. And so the question I want us to consider is, is Matthew concerned with what you should do in your temptation? Or is he going to show you what Jesus did in his? We're going to press in to find out. So then listen with me to the conversation, to the talk with Jesus in Matthew 4 and the first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to you. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help as we consider his word, and then we'll jump in on the conversation. Father, we give you great thanks for this time to gather. We ask that you would do something we are unable to do in this time. That is, that your Holy Spirit would get infused into the puffs of air that come from my mouth and fill them with your power. And that you would come and infuse a soft, receiving, believing heart 
in our chest that we would hear and believe your word. We pray that you would help us to be faithful in both the communicating and the receiving of your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make much of Jesus in our time together. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's just get the background. Before we walk through Matthew 4, we just quickly need to run through some of Matthew 3. In the passage immediately preceding ours, in Matthew 3, 13 to 17, we read that Jesus has just gone to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin, his brother John. In the text, we, we read that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove as he's coming out of the water, and suddenly heaven booms with a loud voice saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you think, if you pause for a second just to ponder the moment, it's an incredible scene. You have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit here at the Jordan. You have the triune, trinitarian God together here at the Jordan. The Father speaking in love and acceptance of and the Spirit descending upon Jesus the Son. It's an incredible moment. Jesus, in chapter 4, verse 12, is about to enter into public ministry. And before he does, you have this marvelous moment at the Jordan River. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. But it doesn't last long because this is how the text continues. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So just picture the scene. Just get a sense of the transition in the text. You're going for Jesus, going from the still waters of the Jordan, comforted by the words of his father and the companionship of his cousin John, and now he's alone in the dry, dreary, dreadful desert, and he's with the devil. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he's hungry. And you need to remember, be sure, be clear, that the express purpose of this journey into the wilderness is solely to face the tempter, to be tempted by the devil. Right? That's what the text says in verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, All right, we're going to hear what the tempter has to say. So just pause for a second, because before we jump in and hear it, I need us to just step back and get a larger picture of what's happening. I need to just remind you that we're reading Matthew's Gospel. That, that's a significant fact. Because though Matthew is really happy that all of us are reading his gospel, Matthew has a very particular audience in mind as he's writing his gospel, as he's telling his narrative. You see, Matthew is writing primarily that his Jewish brothers and sisters would come to believe that Jesus is the one, the Messiah. Matthew's huge heart and concern is that his community, his brethren, would come to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they have been waiting for from Genesis to Malachi. It's Jesus. And so that concern frames everything about Matthew's gospel. You're going to see Matthew, as you read through his gospel, constantly bring the reader back to the Old Testament, constantly refer back to the Old Testament scriptures, sort of like saying to his brothers, remember everything you read, everything that you heard, it's fulfilled in him. He's the one. Just in the first three chapters, 
If you read through the first three chapters, you're going to see Matthew point to the Old Testament in ways that the other gospel writers don't. Mark and Luke and John don't refer back the way that Matthew does. In chapter 2, verse 5, he's going to tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Matthew's quick to point out that was foretold by the prophets. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, we find out that Jesus and his family escaped to Egypt to free themselves from Herod's persecution, and Matthew's quick to point out that that was in fulfillment of Scripture. In chapter 2, verse 19 to 23, we read that Jesus grows up in Nazareth, and Matthew's quick to point out that that's in fulfillment of Scripture that said that he would be called the Nazarene. In 3, verses 1 through 12, we find John the Baptist burst onto the scene, and Matthew's quick to point out that that was in fulfillment of what prophet Isaiah had said. As you keep going, even past chapter 4, you're going to see Matthew constantly bring the reader back to the Old Testament to keep saying, listen, everything you heard, everything you saw, it's in him. You see, that's important because that helps you get how Matthew's going to frame the story, the conversation we're about to look at. So this is how Matthew sets up Jesus' temptation. We get baptism... And then we get temptation. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism and is led into the desert to be tested. Jesus goes through the waters, he passes through the waters, and then he is led by God into the desert to be tested. Here it is, the chosen one of God going through the waters and then into the desert. I don't know if the image is familiar to you, but it would have been strikingly familiar for any Jew that was reading Matthew's gospel for the first time. It would have hit him like a ton of bricks. Because his mind would have immediately raced back to the Old Testament scriptures, to the Torah that he had grown up reading, to the scriptures that he had known, and the image would have immediately brought back to mind God's other chosen one, the people of Israel. The folks who were led by God out of Egypt, delivered by God from the most powerful nation and brought through the waters of the Red Sea and led into the desert to be tested. In fact, as Jesus quotes Deuteronomy throughout this narrative, the passage that Lena read for us, the Jew can't help but think back to Israel and their experience in the desert. And so for Matthew, here's his presentation. The chosen one of God going through the waters and into the desert. Israel goes through the waters and into the desert, and here is now then another chosen one, Jesus. So for the Jew who's reading Matthew's gospel for the first time, here's what I picture him saying to Matthew. He would have said to Matthew, Matthew, you can just stop writing right there. I mean, you can just stop your story at verse 3. You don't have to keep writing because I know how this is going to play out. You don't have to keep going. You can save your ink. I know where this will go. You see, Matthew, we've seen chosen ones before. We've lived through this. We know how this will play out. He would have said to Matthew, listen, Matthew, remember, we had a father named Adam. It's interesting, in Luke's gospel, as he gives the account of Jesus' temptation, he inserts this genealogy right before the temptation. And it sort of seems out of place, like... What's with this genealogy? But it's, the writer wants you to remember the genealogy traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. 
It's as if the writer wants you to remember when you read this story, think back. All the way back to even Adam. So here's what the Jew would say. The Jew would say, listen, we had a father named Adam. And he was in a garden. He wasn't even in a desert like your Jesus. And he wasn't alone. He had the companionship, the company of his bride, his wife, Eve. He wasn't alone like your Jesus. And his belly wasn't hungry like your Jesus. His belly was full with the finest fruit you could imagine. God had created an entire plush garden called Eden, and he could eat anything that he wanted. All God said to him was, you see that one? Don't touch that. But then the tempter comes, like he comes for your Jesus. And with just a few short words, Adam is chomping down on that apple so fast and plunging all of humanity into sin with him. So Matthew, if Adam fails in the most ideal of circumstances, what chance does your Jesus have? The Jew would continue, listen, if you don't believe me, just think of the other chosen one of God, the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, the people of which I'm a part. God had walked our people out of the most powerful nation on earth. We didn't lift a finger or a spear or a sword or a bow. We didn't do anything. God obliterated Egypt with ten plagues we saw with our eyes. We walked through the Red Sea. But then we were led into the desert to be tested like your Jesus. And we grew hungry like your Jesus. And then when we should have trusted God, when he should have been enough, our people began to grumble and murmur and complain. And they fell as fast as their father, Adam. So Matthew, please do us a favor. Save your aim because we know that where this is going. You're telling us now we're supposed to get excited about another chosen one and that he's in the desert like Israel with the devil like Adam? Matthew, you can just stop because we know where this will go. Those are the cards that sort of stacked up against this narrative. That's the background that Matthew presents when he's writing this story. And if you could hear him, it's almost as if Matthew says, Listen, brothers. Listen, sisters, I know Israel's story, and I know Adam's story, and I know our story, but watch what happens. Watch this. Watch what he does. So here we go. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are, or you can translate that, Since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here we go. The first temptation. Jesus has just fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And again, that number reminds you of Israel's experience, 40 years in the desert. 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil comes to him and he says, make bread. 40 days and 40 nights. 40 minutes, and I would have turned every stone in Israel into a loaf of bread. I would have turned the devil himself into a giant loaf, right? 40 days, 40 nights, and the devil says, make bread. Now you read that and you might go, hold on, time out. What's the big deal anyway? Right? What is the sin here? So what if Jesus makes some wonder bread? If he turns some stones into bread? Who cares? If you know Israel's story, you know that they came into the desert. And when they should have trusted God, when the hunger began to grow in their bellies, they began to grumble and murmur and complain. And so the enemy's temptation is this. Jesus you commit the same sin they did. 
Don't wait for God to provide. Don't find ultimate satisfaction in Him. Since you are the Son of God, since you're God, that's what the Father said at the baptism, do that manna trick all over again. Make for yourself some bread. It's as if Satan says to Jesus, listen, man does not live on God alone, but on bread alone. And to be truly satisfied, you need your belly full. Let bread be your great portion and not God. It's a subtle but cunning lie. It's one that Adam fell for. Adam had the entire garden, his wife, everything to satisfy his heart. He had God to satisfy his soul. And Adam trades it all because the scriptures tell us he traded it for a fruit which was pleasing to the eye. It's something that we fall for all the time. You and I know all too well what it is to treasure things other than God, even good things. Let me be clear. There is nothing inherently sinful about bread. There's nothing wrong with bread. But the temptation is you take these things and make them ultimate. You take even good things, bread, food, work, sex, family, marriage. You take these good things and you make them ultimate. How does Jesus respond? Where Adam failed and Israel failed and you and I have failed, Jesus succeeds. Matthew shouts, Jesus succeeds. Do you see how he responds? He quotes the passage that Lena read for us from Deuteronomy and he says, Adam should have known and Israel should have known and I do know. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is enough. God will be my great portion. God will be my satisfaction. Where Adam failed and Israel failed and all humanity has failed, Matthew wants to shout, Jesus succeeded. Where we have failed to treasure God, Jesus succeeded. Can you picture Matthew? Sort of running down the streets of Jerusalem, screaming to everybody that will listen, Did you see that? He didn't falter. He didn't flinch. He didn't fail. He succeeded. He's perfect in temptation. But watch this, because there's another one. The second temptation. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are, or since you are, the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here it is. The devil has taken Jesus to the top of a temple, and he says, listen, Jesus, you want to quote scripture? Hear scripture. Psalm 91 says that if you jump, God will show up and send his very angels to lift you up, so much so that your little toe won't even strike the stone. He says to Jesus, listen, that's an incredible promise, but we got to find out if it's true. Prove it. It's an incredible idea, Jesus, but there's only one way to find out if God will really show up. You better jump. And let's see, let's test and see if God really shows up, if he's faithful to his word. You hear the cunning words of the serpent? Did God really say that he'll lift you up? Well, you better jump so that we can find out. There's only one way to know. Did God really say that? It's the same words that he said in the garden. He goes to Eve and he says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat that fruit? Did, did he really say that you'll die if you did? Eve falls. 
Adam falls. What about Israel? They come to the desert and they grow thirsty. And instead of trusting the God who had obliterated Egypt and walked them through the Red Sea and poured manna from heaven, they begin to grumble and test God. And they say to themselves, is God even among us? We won't know unless he provides some water. We won't know if he really will be faithful unless we test him. How does Jesus respond? Where Adam failed and Israel failed and you and I have failed, Jesus succeeds. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knows that God is faithful and he will not prove it at the whims of the devil. He will not put God to the test. He will trust Him. He says, Adam should have known, and Israel should have known, and all humanity should know, and I do know that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where Adam fails, and Israel fails, and all of us have failed to trust God, Jesus succeeds. So you can imagine Matthew now, right? Sort of running through the streets saying, did you see that? How about now? Do you trust? Do you believe this is the one? Did you see he went two for two? He's perfect in his obedience to God. And can you imagine the Jew that's reading this for the first time? They're reading the story and they're thinking to themselves, could this really be? He's past two of them. Could this really be the one? Does he really have a chance? And Matthew says, watch this, because there's one more. The third temptation, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Okay, so the devil intensifies the game. He's not playing around anymore. He gets really brazen and bold and he takes Jesus and he says, let's go. And he takes him to the top of a mountain. And there at the top of the mountain, he shows to Jesus all the kingdoms and their glory. And he says to Jesus, listen, I will give you all of this if you just bow down for one second and worship me. All the kingdoms, just one second of idolatry, and it's yours. What's the devil offering Jesus here? You see, if you keep reading the story, if you keep reading through the epistles and you read through Revelation, you know that all of history is moving to the point where all the kingdoms and the glory and the nations will be before the throne of Jesus. That's where it's going. It's inevitable. Philippians 2, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Psalm 2 has promised that God has said to his anointed one, all the nations will be your inheritance. And so everything is moving so that the kingdoms and their glory will be before Jesus. That's where it's going. So what's Satan offering here? Satan's offering a shortcut. He's saying, listen, if all the kingdoms and their glory are coming to you, that's fine with me. But you can have them right now. You can have the kingdoms and the glory and the praise of all the people. And you can have it now. You see, if Jesus is going to receive the kingdoms and the praise and the glory, if he's going to inherit the nations, how's that going to happen? If he does this God's way, what's it going to take? It means he's going to have to be betrayed and beaten and bloodied and broken and bruised. He's going to have to climb Calvary and be crucified on a cross and killed. He's going to have to be separated from the Father. He's going to have to bear the wrath of God and the judgment of human sin. If he does this God's way, it means incredible suffering, incredible pain, 
separation from God. And so what the devil says is, listen, you can have the kingdoms without the cross. You can have all the kingdoms and their glory without the cross. Just one second of bowing down and it's yours. How does Jesus respond? How did Israel respond? When they failed to see God on their timetable, when he delayed in their minds, they were quick to craft a cow and worship it as God. To bow down and worship it. And even today, how do we respond? Does not the enemy offer the same shortcut to us in our day? Doesn't he whisper to the heart and mind of a young man, listen, you can have all the pleasures of sex and you can have them now. Do this my way. God's way will mean for you waiting for covenant and marriage and commitment. You can have the pleasures of them all and you can have them now. Doesn't the enemy whisper these same lies to the ears of the businessman who's tempted by scandal? Listen, you can have the riches of a lifetime and you can have them now. Do this my way. Because God's way will mean for you years of hard work and diligence and a slow climb to the top and you can have all of it and you can have it now. Satan offers this cosmic shortcut to Jesus. You can have the kingdoms without the cross. How does Jesus respond? For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Where Adam failed and Israel failed and you and I have failed, Jesus succeeded. He says, Adam should have known and Israel should have known and you and I should know, but Jesus does know. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Jesus says, I will not do this your way for my glory. I will do this God's way for his. Seven Mile Road, are you beginning to see the hero that Matthew is pointing to? Are you beginning to see Jesus Christ? He does not flutter. He does not flinch. He does not fail. He goes toe to toe with the tempter and he triumphs in temptation every time. Three times Satan comes and says words to him. Three times Jesus responds. One extra word does Jesus say. He says, be gone, Satan. And what does the devil do? He doesn't fire back a verse. He doesn't come back with a clever comeback. He shuts his mouth and he departs from the desert defeated. Where you and I have never been able to do that, Jesus does. Jesus triumphs in temptation. The chosen one who lives the life we should have lived but couldn't. Jesus, so like us, right? Jesus, so like Adam, flesh and bone and blood like Adam, but so unlike Adam, he remains obedient to God. So like Israel, the chosen one of God, but so unlike Israel, he remains holy before God. So like us, flesh like us, bone like us, blood like us, tempted like us, but so unlike us, he remains perfect in his obedience to God. Tempted in every way, but without sin. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't miss the significance of this moment. Don't miss what weighs, what hangs in the balance in this showdown in the desert. You see, from the beginning, God had ordained that only a sinless sacrifice could atone for the sins of humanity. 
Only a sinless person could assume the sins of the rest of mankind. You see, if Jesus had failed, if he had made bread or jumped down or bowed down, then all of salvation history comes crashing to a halt. It's done. God does not send to the cross the best sinner he could find. God sends to the cross the only sinless Savior the world has ever known. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can climb Calvary. You see, you place any other man on a cross and all you've got is a sinner dying with sinners. You place Jesus Christ on a cross and now you've got a Savior dying for them, not with them. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news. He has come and lived the life we should have lived but couldn't and died the death we should have died but didn't. Jesus has done it. Jesus, the chosen one of God, has done what Adam couldn't do and Israel couldn't do and you and I couldn't do. He triumphs in temptation. From the beginning, in Genesis 3, God promises that there would come a Savior who would be locked in enmity with the serpent. He'd be locked into a struggle with the enemy. And as far back as Genesis 3, God promises this serpent will strike his heel, but this Savior will crush his head. And this showdown in the desert is just a preview, just a prelude for the war that would be waged and won at Calvary. Because our sin and Satan's schemes would send this Jesus to the cross, but in doing so, he would triumph again over death and Satan and sin and hell. This is the marvelous, beautiful truth of the gospel. Just consider what happens at the cross. You and I come with our failures in the face of temptation. Jesus comes with his triumph in the face of temptation. And at the cross, we trade places. So that all of my failure and all of my defeat and all of my sin in the face of temptation is given to him. And all of his perfection and all of his righteousness and all of his victory in the face of temptation is given to me. We trade places. I come sinful, defeated, broken. He comes righteous, triumphant, victorious. And we change places at the cross. First, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin becomes sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin absorbs, assumes our sin and becomes sin for us that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Listen, brothers, if you know what it's like to be tempted, listen, sisters, if you know what it's like to be tempted, I have really good news for you. So does Jesus. Hebrews 2 tells us that because he was tempted, he is able to help us in our temptations. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. In Jesus, you have a brother who comes alongside you and says, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to fight, to battle the enemy. I know the heat of the war that you're in. But we need more than a brother who can just sympathize with us. We need a Savior who can lift us up and out of our pit. And Jesus is that too. Because where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. If you have failed in temptation, I have really good news for you. 
Jesus has not. And you have a hero who comes and offers his victory and his triumph to you. If you're here and you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you're here and you're heavy laden, burdened down with your sin, with your failure in the face of temptation, you can come to the cross of Jesus. You can come in repentance and faith and take on his righteousness. And when you do, and for those of you that have done that, I want some really good news to penetrate your ears. There is no condemnation for you anymore. But when God looks at you, he sees you not for the failure of your temptations, but he sees you wrapped and clothed and insulated and covered with the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. He looks at you as though you had triumphed in temptation every time. He looks at you in the victory, in the righteousness, in the perfection, in the obedience of his son Jesus. It is yours for all who would believe. Not something you're hoping happens one day. It's as true now as it will ever be. We stand righteous in Christ, forgiven of our sins. So if you don't know Jesus, run to him. And if you do, praise be to Jesus. Where Adam failed and Israel failed and you and I have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Let's pray.